0: Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Just visit Audible.com slash Wondery or text Wondery Pod to 500 That's Audible.com slash Wondery Pod or text wonderypod to five hundred-five hundred. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg.
2: Hi there, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast this time from one of America's oldest cities, that would be Boston. I'll talk with historian Bob Allison on separating American myth from real American history. Then I'll chat with Keith Lockhart, the conductor of the legendary Boston Pops and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Then my conversation with Peggy Fogelman, director of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, one of the great collections of art in America, also the site, of the greatest theft of art from a museum in history. And batting cleanup, Sarah Coffin, who has one of the best jobs ever. She's the curator for the Boston Red Sox.
0: First up, Bob Allison. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out... To the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy.
3: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion
2: Doctor, thank you for joining us. Well, Peter, welcome to Boston. I Listen, I always like coming to Boston simply because as new as the city is in terms of, let's, for example, this hotel just only opened yes. up a couple of months ago. Uh, it's, the history has been retained. Right. And it's been retained in an accessible
4: way. That's right. And it's not a living history museum. It's a city that keeps changing, keeps growing. But we do have everywhere you look, as you said, you have connections with other people who have been here.
2: Now, we could start with the obvious, right? The British are coming. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you want to start there?
4: <laughs> well, we could, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there's yeah. so much more than that. that that's right, yeah. yeah.
2: And, and and one of the things that you do in the book and one of the things that, that it's important to do, it's a word that we, we miss out on a lot today. It's called context right. uh, and perspective. So it's more than just saying the words Boston Tea Party, or it's more than just saying the British are coming, one if by land and two if right. by sea. Yes. Uh, and... For me, you know, I, I walk by the, like, it's now called the Omni, but I walk by the Parker House, yes. and there's the graveyard there. Right. And, you know, I, 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 I'm continually fascinated by it every time I come, because you read the gravestones. Mm. Right? Yes. And, you know, today, not that I hang out at a lot of cemeteries, because mm-hmm. I don't, but today, if you go to most cemeteries, you see the person's name when they were born, when they died, that's it, Done. That's not really what's in that graveyard.
4: That's true. I mean, there's a lot of iconography on the stones, the skull with wings, which represents death and resurrection. And then there are the different, in fact, in the granary burying ground are both of Paul Revere's wives. He was married twice, both, well, widowed Widowed the first time. and. They're buried there, and I think his first wife's grave actually has a fully articulated skeleton on it. The Puritans weren't sentimental people. They knew we're burying people because they're dead and <laughs> as, as a way of preventing a public health crisis. And later on, they come to marking graves, but even then, the, the graves really have a certain art. Think about the 17th century, and they're getting pieces of slate to carve not only the person's life, a little thing about his or her story, some message to us, but also an image of the hope for resurrection?
2: You know, it's, the, it's the storytelling itself. I'll give you an example. In Bermuda, uh, there is a place that very few visitors ever go to, and it's a graveyard near the dockyards. And I always, whenever I'm there with a friend of mine, I said, you have to come with me, because when you get to these gravestones and they go back to the 17th century mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know you're talking in the late 1600s early 1700s and it wasn't like john doe you know and you can figure out how many years he was and they were always pretty young 34 mm-hmm. 35 sometimes 22 yeah. but then it then and they took a long time carving into these stones saying he fell from the deck he lingered for days he I mean, they're telling you the entire yes. story
4: oh, yeah, yeah in on Boston Common, there's a small burying ground, and one of my favorite stones, two, two eminent people are buried there in unmarked graves, William Billings, first American composer, and Gilbert Stewart, the portrait artist. If you have a dollar bill, that's his portrait of Washington. But a fellow named Chow Mandarin, who was a teenager who came from China in 1798, and he fell off the mast of a ship in Boston Harbor. See,
2: everybody falls off a mast of a ship. I yeah, love it.
4: And, and the owner of the ship was so contrite, he built a monument to Chow Mandarin there, and in the north end, in Cops Hill Burying Ground, there's a grave of a fellow named Daniel Malcolm and it says he was a true son of liberty and an enemy to oppression and foremost in opposing the Revenue Act. He wanted to be buried at least 10 feet down so he would be beyond the reach of British revenue officers.
2: I know a lot of people like that today.
4: That's right. That, <laughs> we'll, we'll always want to be buried further down, <coughs> excuse, further down. And Malcolm's grave is actually pockmarked with... Um, musket balls because the British used it for target practice now here's another piece of the story I just learned famous another famous character in this period was following John Malcolm who was a revenue informer and he was tarred and feathered twice he was Malcolm's brother these are brothers and they're on opposite sides in this, and one wants to be buried 10 feet down so it would be be, essentially be beyond his brother's reach.
2: You know, it's one thing to be tarred and feathered once, but you really have to piss off a lot of people mm. to be tarred and feathered twice.
4: Well, one reason he was tarred and feathered twice is people mocked him for having been tarred and feathered once, and he got really upset. And uh, friends of his said, you really should tone it down. <laughs> <laughs> and then,
2: of course, it's separating myth from reality, and that even applies to Paul Revere.
4: Yes, What myth are you talking about
2: well he was first of all he he never completed the ride right
4: okay yeah he didn't but he did what he was supposed to do he got the word out yeah but his main role wasn't as a messenger he was a silversmith he was involved in most of the Patriot organizations of the time.
2: We were midway through Paul Revere's ride, which officially he did not complete. Is that correct?
4: If if his mission was to get out to Concord, no, he didn't. But he's captured. He talks his way out of British captivity, goes back to Lexington, and then he alerts Samuel Adams and John Hancock that they better get out because the British are coming. And Hancock and Adams are asleep and their guard says, You better not disturb them. He says, There'll be enough noise soon enough if you don't get them out of here. And then Revere helps move papers away from the site. So he's very he was very much involved that night and thereafter. His name does live on. William Dawes is the fellow who does complete the ride, and then a fellow named uh, Samuel Prescott comes along and helps out. But the word had spread throughout eastern Massachusetts that something was afoot—that
2: the British were coming.
4: The, British, the red the red, coats the, were, red the regulars coats. were out
2: exactly. Another little-known fact about Boston, at least to me, was that it was really the beginning of the anti-slavery movement.
4: Yes, it was. You know, Boston had a pretty important um, African American community. Massachusetts was the first American, North American mainland colony to legalize the institution of slavery. And the first enslaved people came in 1638. In 1640, 1642, the Massachusetts General Court legalized the institution of lifelong slavery that was inheritable. In 1780, it becomes the first American state to abolish slavery.
2: By the way, think about that. 1780, how far ahead of the Civil War?
4: It was very far ahead of the Civil War. So it has a free black community in Boston and in other parts of the state, who are also involved in the revolution. As people are involved in this fight and see the hypocrisy. In 1773, a group of enslaved people petitioned the Massachusetts Assembly that's making a big fuss about our liberty and our rights, and they say we, we expect great things from men who have made such a stand for liberty. And they recognize their status as being enslaved is hypocritical if what we're arguing is no one should be a slave, which is what the patriots are saying. So it becomes um, a center for an African-American community, also the printing industry, and a real focus then on ending slavery in other places. David Walker wrote the first really incendiary anti-slavery tract in 1830, David Walker's Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World, published in Boston. And then he deals in used clothing, which he sends off to South Carolina and other places, packing these crates of um, clothing, knowing that every Christmas a slave owner will give his people a new suit of clothes, and he knows the enslaved people will be opening these crates, and there are these pamphlets saying that... So he hid
2: the pamphlets in the crates.
4: Yeah. And the governor of South Carolina and the governor of Georgia write to the mayor of Boston saying, you should arrest this guy because he's going to stir up an insurrection. And the mayor of Boston says, that's really not my problem. He He has a right to, we have a free press and free speech. And Walker dies somewhat mysteriously a year or two later. But, yeah, you know, if you're a slave, you don't need to read a pamphlet to know that this is a bad thing. But what this will tell you is there are people in other parts of the country who know this is a bad thing. You're letting them know you're Yeah.
2: Exactly. And, of course, now the the literary references to Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, yes. Charles Dickens. Yeah, Poe
4: was born here and hated Boston. He had a lifelong... um, feud with Boston. Boston had the American literary establishment, and Poe was always at odds with America's literary establishment. He hated (laughs) Longfellow. He said not only was he a bad poet, he was a plagiarist. I guess the good stuff he plagiarized. And Longfellow was always kind of gracious toward Poe, but Poe could be kind of vicious, very acerbic literary critic, although he published his first piece under the name A Bostonian. And he, in fact, enlisted in the army at Castle Island in South Boston. A fort is still there. And so Poe enlisted in the army. He had already washed out of West Point because of his gambling problems and other issues. Enlists in the army and washes out again. But he's at Castle Island. Here's a story about an officer who was so disliked that his men tricked him into going into a room. They got him drunk, said, hey, come into here. We have a great cask of wine. And they lock him in there and brick the room up. So he starves to death. And you know,
2: I did that to my house fellow when I was at the University of Wisconsin. Really? <laughs> and we actually, bricked him in. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well. And we still laugh about that. He does too? We have never heard from him again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a true story, by the way. Okay. Uh, now, Edgar Allan Poe, was he? he's also buried in the... Uh, is he in no, the, he's
4: buried in Baltimore. Oh, he is? Poe died in Baltimore, and Baltimore makes, of course, a great deal of... Uh, their, their football team is named the Ravens for Poe, but we do have a statue of Poe. Near where he was born, Poe returning to Boston, his back is turned to the common. He referred to Boston as the frog pond and frog pondia because of the frog pond and the common, but also the great literary lights of New England, Poe thought, were like a lot of bullfrogs. You always know there's a frog pond because the frogs are really loud, but at the end of the day, they're really just frogs, so frog pondia. (laughs) He did say that Boston common is no uncommon thing, and he liked the pumpkin pies but didn't really like much else about Boston. Wow. Okay, I'm learning stuff. We're supposed to be getting people to want to come here, and here we keep talking about. No, this isn't. Is, like
2: no, this. we're just letting them know what is here. Yeah, okay. Doctor, is it true that two thirds of Boston is built on landfill?
4: That's very much true. They like to, We like to say the Puritans came here in 1630, fell in love with Boston, and then started changing it. And Boston was a small peninsula, the Shawmut Peninsula. They needed more space, so they began by filling in creeks and marshy areas. Is
2: that why they call it the Back Bay?
4: The Back Bay was a bay, and that was filled in in the 19th century in one of the biggest public works projects in the history of the country. Every 45 minutes, a train filled with gravel would come and dump gravel into what was the Back Bay, filling it in between about the 1850s and 1880, making it into a very elegant neighborhood.
2: And are they still doing that?
4: They're still doing that. You know, the airport was filled in mainly in the 20th century. Well, there
2: are a lot of airports that are built that are are landfill.
4: That's right, because you needed something close to downtown.
2: And, of course, that explains why there's a tunnel to the airport.
4: That, that's right. The tunnel is also relatively new and there was an island, you know, Boston also has a great park in the harbor, of the harbor islands and one of them, Spectacle Island, called that because it looked like a pair of spectacles, was a garbage dump for most of the 19th and 20th centuries and in the 1960s someone had the bright idea of lighting this on fire and this fire burned for about 10 years and then with the di- with the fill, oh, they're that,
2: that, that whole thing burned for 10 years? They well, never there, put so, it out? There was
4: so much methane underneath in oh. this huge pile. It's
2: like that tire fire uh, the coal yeah, fire in yeah. Pennsylvania yeah,
4: yeah. but and when the Ted Williams tunnel was being put in the bottom of the harbor they did some dredging they took that dirt and they used that to cap Spectacle Island which is now a very nice park you can walk around terrific views of the city and how's the methane the methane well they have it under control <laughs> <laughs> Don't light a match.
2: No, you're right, whatever you do, whatever you do. But in the history of the United States, the revolution way before Lexington and Concord really started here.
4: Yeah, uh, John Adams liked to say that the revolution was accomplished before a drop of blood was spilled at Lexington Green. It was people deciding how they would be governed. And Boston had a town meeting, and Boston really was focused on self-government. Some, an English diarist said that the king has Boston on the brain, that this seemed to be a rebellious place. And the some Bostonians had stolen some cannon from actually Battery Wharf in Boston, near where we're sitting now, and were stockpiling weapons out in Concord. And that's what brought the British patrol out there in April of 1775. It could have happened at any other point. But yeah, it was what was happening in Boston for 10 years before that is precipitating the revolution. Adams always d- differentiated between the War for Independence and the American Revolution. The revolution was one thing. The war happened next. He, of course, didn't serve in the war. He was much more focused on the revolution. So he had a little bit of jealousy toward those who, like Washington, had played a role in the war.
2: No no egos there.
4: No, none at all. No,
2: none at all. Speaking of history, you know... In New York, we have the New York Marathon. Everybody thinks that's, you know, it goes back decades. Well, wait a second.
4: 1897.
2: Boston, Boston
4: Marathon. Boston Marathon, yeah. Actually, it was a group of New Yorkers who ran it the first time. Really? New York running. Some out-of-staters came, came in? Yeah, they came up actually on Patriots Day, the day that commemorates Lexington and Concord. And they, they had run in the Olympic Marathon in 1896, the first modern Olympics. And then they started running in the Boston Marathon.
2: And then, to this day, it's continued.
4: It does, yes.
2: But what I love about it is what they do at Fenway.
4: That's right. They have a game at Fenway that's scheduled early so that the game ends just as. It's a baseball
2: right. game that starts at Fenway with the Red Sox at 11 in the morning. 11
4: in the morning, yeah. yeah.
2: So when the game is over, the runners are just coming through.
4: That's right. Yeah. So we have this huge confluence of people at the same time. Every Patriots Day, which is now the, it's the third Monday in April. It used to be April 19th, which is the anniversary of Lexington and Concord.
2: Wow. And, it's, and that's been going on for how long?
4: Patriots Day? No, the game. The game. The Red Sox game. Well, that would be from about 1903, I guess.
2: And they never mess with that.
4: They they don't, no. Some traditions you can't mess with.
2: The history, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later in the show, but the history of Fenway itself.
4: Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a great ballpark. And about 20 years ago, the new owners of the Red Sox thought, why don't we build a new ballpark? Which others were doing, like the Tigers had and others. And then... They did a survey of what brought people to Fenway Park, and probably about 60% came because it's Fenway Park. Less important, whatever team the Red Sox were fielding. Since then, subsequently, we've had some pretty good teams that have won the World Series, but it is the lore of being in the same ballpark where Ted Williams played and Cy Young played and these other legendary players.
2: Yeah, you know, we were just talking to Sarah Coffin, who's the actual curator oh, yeah. and historian of the Red Sox, and there's just so much great history there.
4: There is a tremendous history of the Red Sox, and and, and they've done a very good job of preserving it and making it accessible. And there are all kinds of pockets of ball. There's a bar on uh, Boylston Street, Nuff Said McGreevy's. McGreevy had a bar called Third Base because it was your last stop before you went home. And he collected <laughs> a lot of Red Sox memorabilia and photographs and things. And then when Prohibition came in, the bar shut down. And it became a branch of the Boston Public Library. So the library has uh, the Nuff Said, and, and his name was Nuff Said because people arguing in the bar, he would settle the argument by saying, enough said and, <laughs> and so it became a branch of the library and the Boston Public Library which is one of the great research libraries in the world and the oldest public lending library in the country has his collection of baseball memorabilia
2: amazing you know what I have to say to that enough said enough said <laughs> my thanks to Bob you can't think Boston or Boston history without thinking Boston Pops the iconic American orchestra, and conductor Keith Lockhart has just a few stories to tell. Welcome to Keith Lockhart, who is the current conductor of the Boston Pops and the Bo- at the Boston Symphony Orchestra. You've been here 27 years. Amazing. I have.
1: It's kind of incredible. I've, I'm no longer looking over my shoulder to see who's going to take the car keys away.
2: <laughs> well, one day they're coming for us both, you know that. But... It's interesting to note that, I, of course, I go back to the original days of, of, of John Williams. As and Arthur you, Fiedler before that. And Arthur so. Fiedler before that. Of course, Arthur Fiedler, I used to watch him on PBS. You know, that, that's always. But my, my experience with John Williams is he wrote the music when I was at NBC. He wrote the music for the Nightly News.
1: Well, John Williams is kind of the soundtrack of all of our lives and so many different things. And it's been wonderful to have him as an older colleague and a mentor for all this time. You know, there have been three conductors of the Boston Pops since 1930. So we're
2: okay. going. Arthur, going on. Fiedler,
1: Arthur Fiedler, John, John Williams, Williams, and me. And, you. <laughs> and I have I have the second longest uh tenure in the hundred and thirty year history of the institution, and I'm securing uh, secure in the knowledge that I'll never catch number one because Fiedler died in his fiftieth year on the podium.
2: Unbelievable. Unbelievable. What's changed? Oh,
1: in Boston? I mean, you're still tour- in- no,
2: about the Pops. You're still doing all the national tours?
1: Well, it is, uh, you know, well, you know, what hasn't changed in these couple of these years after COVID. And uh, of course, all of us in the live performing arts took a big hit because we had basically a year and a half of totally closed down situations. And we are recovering and coming back and the audiences are coming back. They're hungry for that kind of, I think, community and, uh, and sharing. And we're hungry to give it to them, of course. Uh, we actually have not been on a tour since about a month be before, as I say, the world ended in March of 2020. And uh, But over the years, I've done nearly 50 tours with the orchestra, most of them domestic, four of them to Asia. And uh, we do have a couple of tours on the horizon including going back to Japan, we hope, in the fall of 23. So, uh, you know, hopefully a new day ahead, but it also gives us a chance to look at what we've done and what we are going to do in the future and, and revise and tweak the model a little bit.
2: And the repertoire?
1: The repertoire has uh, changed, but uh, strangely at its core remained the same. I think Fiedler came up with a really good formula when he got it right after the previous 17 conductors in the previous in the first 45 years of the organization hadn't gotten it right. He figured out that the orchestra needed to remain the star of the show, that it shouldn't just be background to whichever you know famous person we put in front of it. Uh, and his uh, the core of his background was, of course, very much like classical. We still do that music, great music written for a great orchestra, and with the musicians of the Boston Symphony, of course, we have one of the world's great orchestras to play pretty much we have whatever we put down in front of them. It's been added to, as we've looked at, other pots of repertoire that really take, we, our, our goal has always been to have the widest possible lens view of what orchestral expression and what music means. Of course, with John coming in, there was a huge influx in the amount of film music that we did, and that is one of the most important media for great new orchestral music, of course. Uh, I've worked with world musicians, uh, you know, world music, uh, singer-songwriters, indie rock bands, that sort of thing as what well. Been,
2: what has been your most interesting and surprising collaboration? I
1: think, wow, there've been a lot of them. Uh, Amanda Palmer of the Dresden Dolls was certainly a, a different one, and definitely not the one to bring your kids to for the very first uh, <laughs> for their very first exposure. We have uh, bands like. Um, uh, my morning jacket and Guster, um, indie rock musicians, singer-songwriters. Uh, you know, it's they—they all bring something different. And then all of a sudden, then you have somebody like, um, you know, a comedian, uh, a uh, Nathan Lane, a uh, Jason Alexander, that sort of person. I've worked with. There was a there was a, a poll made. I I just passed my twenty fifth uh, anniversary. Nobody noticed because it was in the year that we were shut down. But there was a a list made of all the people I'd worked with, and it's something like. 300 different solo artists over the last 2,000 concerts. But who's counting?
2: Yeah, but Hey, you know what? People, <laughs> but people are still counting and they're still coming.
1: They are. They, uh, this this year we just finished doing uh, our, we have two big seasons in the Boston Pops life during the year. One is the traditional spring season of the Boston Pops, which you saw reflected on Evening of Pops, which extended through John's tenure and into mine. Um, we, when we do about, oh, 40 concerts or so through May and June, culminating outdoors on the 4th of July, which of course is a huge moment in the Boston Pops Well, that's, Pop that's
2: the quintessential moment for you guys.
1: It's a quintessential outreach moment. I mean, we reach so many people. And the
2: songbook doesn't change. Uh, no, well,
1: it, you know, well, the core of the songbook doesn't change. Of course, uh, we try to express you know great things about American music in a really wide group, and, if, and that goes from when you know I had Sandy Duncan and and uh, and Debbie Reynolds and. Oh, uh, Mel Torme and people like that in my first couple of years. And more recently, it's been Jonas Brothers and, uh, you know, and uh, things that are a little more contemporary because what we have the widest, the most diverse audience we ever have in all facets, 500,000 people in the live crowd, millions more along on TV and streaming.
2: You know, we think about the Boston Symphony Orchestra and the Boston Pops, we think about quintessentially American songs. We're thinking about patriotic songs. We just did a piece uh, for my show on on PBS that'll be coming out a little bit later this year on songs that we think are patriotic, but aren't. (laughs) Like
1: Born in the USA, for instance? Like that
2: one. And (laughs) one that was Woody Guthrie's song, This Land is Your Land.
1: Right, exactly. Which was written as a protest song. It was written written in uh, reaction to God Bless America. Right, the Irving Irving Berlin song. But of course, there's the interesting question there. What is patriotic? Were they maybe more patriotic because they were pointing out the flaws and the suggested changes?
2: Exactly. Exactly. And then you know when you look at the, the I went to the Guthrie Center in in, uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and talked to the curators there. The and I saw the lyrics for the first time because when I was growing up, we only knew a couple of lyrics like "This land is your yeah, land, right, this yeah. land is my land." You
1: didn't know the ones about private property and uh, and uh, and the bread lines. Uh, those yeah. those are the we ones we, we, we were really never taught heard. those lines. Well, one a great friend of the Boston Pops, whom we've toured with and appeared on the Fourth of July with us, and who lives in Western Massachusetts, is Arlo
2: Guthrie. And it was it was Arlo who finally Woody finally called Arlo and said listen to the whole words, and then the real story is it was Arlo who convinced Bruce Springsteen to sing the song with those lyrics at the Washington Monument.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. you know I think patriotism and we try to do we re- reflect. Yes, especially in these last few years with all the things that this country has collectively been dealing with. Uh, in On the 4th of July concert, it, we, we do, you know, we sing patriotic songs together. We play 1812 and the Stars and Stripes Forever and all that stuff. And the of fireworks, thing. of course. Of course. But we also try to go a little deeper than that and, and, and point out that America is a work in progress and that uh, part of being patriotic is
2: be honestly addressing those problems. The other song that we, we investigated, which I thought was fascinating... Which, by the way, is the state song of Kentucky, is my old Kentucky my home. Old Kentucky home. And the original lyrics uh, whoa. can't can't it can't be
1: reproduced today.
2: Uh, <laughs> well, actually, we did, as in a way of being instructional and educational, to let the audience know this is the song that was originally written. This is what it was supposed to represent. Mm-hmm. Then those words were clearly whitewashed if, to use the entire pun yes uh, completely. And, then, and then all of a sudden now it's being sung at every Kentucky Derby it's the state song of, of Kentucky but the historical context has been lost. I wonder if every Kentuckian knows the historical context
1: if they listen to your uh, your broadcast they will I Well suppose.
2: hopefully they will <laughs> but I mean it may be somewhat uncomfortable to find out mm-hmm. and, and we look we live in a world of political correctness and wokeness but the reality is that song was actually supporting slavery. On A Way of Life.
1: Oh, I mean, the, that song dates from, what, 1840s? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Stephen Foster, uh, another tragic American artist. That's correct. <laughs> and Who never got paid.
2: <laughs> you understand royalty? Well, yes, exactly. That's He's not the
1: first nor the last composer you can say that about.
2: When somebody comes to one of your concerts, what's the one thing that's going to surprise them? I think how accessible the
1: genre is. Uh, the Boston Pops, I think, has a really interesting history that says a lot about what it, why it's there. Uh, we call ourselves America's Orchestra. We're certainly the first uh, national institution that really took on the idea of how an orchestra could play for somebody other than a very elite small classical music group, which it certainly was in you know late 19th century Boston, a very Brahmin kind of group. The uh, Boston Symphony was founded in 1881, the Boston Pops in 1885 in its fifth season. And on its surface, the reason it was was for employee retention because the Boston Symphony season was so short and all their musicians were European. Uh, almost, so entirely, off. almost entirely German up through World War I. Uh, and they all would go back home to see their families, and they'd take other jobs. And so they'd they had take to take their sousaphone exactly. and go home. <laughs> exactly. They, they, they'd have to rehire the whole orchestra every year. And so they thought, if we have another kind of... Uh, concerts for a broader group of people maybe we could keep uh, another 10 weeks going and make this a full-time orchestra but there's a deeper thing too boston is a unique city in terms of how it feels what the kind of the public uh, uh, the public contract is uh, this is the first city to have a public library and Massachusetts in general and Boston Free Public Library being the first big one. Um, and uh, yeah, and uh, the public education and we're a public orchestra.
2: My thanks to Keith. One of America's great museums is the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum with one of the great collections. But it also has a dark side to its history. Director Peggy Fogelman loves the museum. She also lives that story.
3: Ah. People have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome. Thank you, Peter. Glad to be here.
2: You know, when I think of that museum, you know, I think of her story and how she started. You know, she, she died in 1924, but the point is she really wanted to have a legacy that continued.
5: That's right. That's right. And um, she left the museum in her will for the Education and Enjoyment of the public forever. And her vision was really to bring an experience of beauty to the people of Boston who might not otherwise have access to it. Before
2: we even get to the objects, let's talk about the building itself. Right?
5: Yeah, so um often the gardener the historic building of the gardener is compared to a Venetian palace turned outside in. A palazzo. A palazzo. And we fondly call it the palace. And the reason for that is when you walk into the historic building, you're confronted with this amazing, beautiful courtyard that's blooming all year round, which is a, a great solace on a cold, wintry day in Boston like today. Um, and the facades that surround the courtyard um, are modeled on the exteriors of Venetian palaces. And Isabella spent much time in Venice and she really fell in love with the city. And so she, she brought that sensibility back to Boston. I mean, the courtyard is somewhat of a surprise because people are going to the museum, but they end up falling in love with the courtyard. It's a real wow moment when you walk in, and it's also a real shoulders-down moment. It's a really de-stressing experience to be surrounded by the beautiful plants and hear the trickle of the fountain, and it's a very multi-sensory, immersive experience, and it really shows how much she valued horticulture as a living art. She put it right smack in the center of her museum. It's really the heart and soul of the building.
2: But when she died, the collection was already starting,
5: of course— So what's in that building that goes back to her? Everything. Everything. (laughs) Everything. So, um... She began collecting... Because she was a traveler. She was a traveler. She traveled all over the world. She was an intrepid traveler, in fact. She was one of the first Western women to visit places like Angkor Wat and Karnak. At a time when women weren't doing a lot of traveling. That's right. That's right. She traveled with her husband, Jack. She actually started traveling. This is something that many listeners may be able to relate to. So she had one child, her son, Jackie, who died at the age of two, and she was so depressed and and anxiety ridden over the death of her child that her husband, Jack, started taking her on trips to help her get over her her mourning and her loss. A distraction. A distraction, but a very welcome distraction. And she had boundless curiosities. So um, she really was fascinated with all the cultures that she encountered. And she began collecting and bringing things back. Um, Her Real love, her real passion was the Italian Renaissance, but in fact, she collected um, from all different cultures um, from all over the world, in fact, and was very influenced by them.
2: And then she really established the museum after her husband died.
5: She did. She she actually single handedly. Um, you know, they had had a conception for a museum before he died, but it was actually um, her who um, who who worked with the architect to design it. In fact, we have photographs of her up on the scaffolding, telling the workmen how she wanted it done. <laughs> um, she was a very very hands on patron of that museum, and then she installed the collection according to her own curatorial sensibility.
2: I like that. My own curatorial sensibility. I like. I'm gonna. I'm gonna steal that every time I do something. I say, you know, that's my curatorial sensibility. Absolutely. <laughs> but you know, she didn't just go with established artists. She went with marginalized artists as well.
5: Yes, and actually, she's she's quite radical in a number of ways. Um, first of all, her independence and autonomy as a woman in Victorian era Boston was quite exceptional. She a, a little fun fact. She was the first. Um, Sort of aristocratic Bostonian woman to um, to reject hoop skirts, <laughs> so she was <laughs> deal. she was very fashion forward. Um, but uh, you know, she 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 was really independent, and she really embraced many artists and and social reformers who were quite radical in their own day, mm-hmm. and she showcased their work at the museum.
2: We're coming up on an anniversary, and the anniversary is next month in March. Goes back. 34, 33 years, excuse me, on March 18th, 1990, a uh, a vehicle pulled up near the side entrance of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, and two men in police uniforms came out, pushed the museum buzzer, saying they were responding to a disturbance, and the rest, as they say, is history. What happened, Peggy?
5: I knew you were going to ask me. About I had this to ask you. <laughs> um, this is not, you know, uh, of course, a happy moment in the history of the museum. So um, yes, we experienced actually the greatest theft of art in in history of any museum in the world. Um, we're still very optimistic that those those works of art will be returned. But it was a great loss, not only to the museum but to the public, to the global public.
2: I mean, you had Degas. Rembrandt, Vermeer.
5: I mean, we're talking serious stuff here. That's right. That's right. There are so few, um, for instance, the artist Vermeer, who's very famous. Dutch 17th century painting painter um you know 30 some odd works known to be by him um and this was one of them so that's a great loss um Rembrandt's only seascape um that he ever painted was stolen um so a manet yes
2: amazing and it's been unsolved for nearly 33 years
5: it has the investigation is active and ongoing, um, and did, yet the paintings every, remain at large. You know, everybody wants to
2: how how did that happen. Some people say it was because it was close to St. Patrick's Day, and and people were distracted thinking about other things. It wasn't a busy time at the museum. It just happened.
5: It happened. Um, there have been other thefts of other Boston museums that happened around the same time, or you know, within years of each other, but none. None quite like this, um, and yeah, it was just a really tragic, tragic moment.
2: And the FBI, by the way, is still offering a ten million dollar reward.
5: That's right, we are offering a ten million dollar reward for the return of the works of art. Something tells me, I mean, for example,
2: if I'm going to steal something that's priceless, I can't sell it. I can't go on. I, I can't go on eBay. I can't. Right? I mean. It either gets put in somebody's private hands that nobody ever gets a chance to see, just for ego reasons, or sooner or later somebody's got to talk.
5: Yeah. So the you know it happens a lot in the movies that people uh, commission this the the theft of a work of art to um, house it in their own private collection. It doesn't really happen in real life. Um, so the likelihood is that it's hidden somewhere, and maybe the. Person who was originally involved in the theft is no longer with us, and someday someone will be cleaning out a storeroom, or they'll be up in the attic. They'll be up in the attic, and and there have been several works in the last several years from other museums that have been rediscovered that way.
2: Well, we're living in a world right now, as I'm sure you know, where finally countries are being able to repatriate their own works of art, that were their heritage has been raped and, and, and stolen from their own countries, whether it's the Benin Bronzes or half the stuff in the British Museum. I mean, you know, and, and or Slyman in, 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 uh, in Italy and in, and in Turkey. I mean, the, the, everything was appropriated. Now everyone's saying, oh, can we have it back now? Can we possibly get it back? And heads of state are making it a condition of even their visiting other countries saying, I'm not showing up till you return it. So things are starting to happen.
5: Yes, although the theft is, I would say, maybe not so related to repatriation efforts. Depending on where they are. But hopefully, um, they will someday be returned. Someone will discover them.
2: And that will be a reopening of the museum that I think will be very well attended.
5: I think that'll be very (laughs) celebrated in Boston and around the world, actually.
2: But until that happens, for people who come to Boston and who want to visit the museum, what are the surprises for you that await for them?
5: Um, it's just, it's really unique. So one of the things I want to say about the museum is that um, as Gardner conceived it, it really is a very sensory experience. Um, it's really prized emotion and personal interpretation over any kind of didactic approach. So things are not displayed chronologically or by, by region. It's not, you don't walk into white box galleries, it's really just um, so evocative and you have paintings and sculpture and textiles all um, displayed next to each other. It really is storytelling. It's so intimate. I, I have to say, it's the best place in Boston for date night ever. It is the most romantic setting ever. We have many people who have sort of gorilla engagements in the courtyard. <laughs> really? Which is really kind of wonderful and all the visitors clap and yeah, it's 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 quite a, a wonderful place. So even people who don't normally go to art museums would really find this a very special experience.
2: So, if you're listening to the show right now and your significant other asked you if you'd like to go have a dinner after going to the museum at the Gardner Museum,
5: there may be another purpose in. It. Yeah, prepare yourself. <laughs>
2: <laughs> My thanks to Peggy. And then talk about baseball and Boston. The Red Sox and Red Sox Nation. Who knows that history? That would be Sarah Coffin, who has the job I really want. She's the curator for the Sox. Hey, Sarah.
6: Nice to be here. Thank you.
2: You have the dream job. I love it.
6: You know, it's been a very interesting 12 years.
2: (laughs) I mean, when you think about it, so much of American history is baseball history. And so much of baseball history is East Coast history. Because of, of teams like the old Brooklyn Dodgers, the New York Yankees, and of course... Fenway and the Boston Red Sox
6: I often say that baseball history is reflexive of American history so you can look at any team time period player and see what was going on in the country through that lens Um, so whether it be Jackie Robinson or Ted Williams all the way up through the modern game, you can typically see what was going on uh, during that time period and and what people were watching and And doing. see all the changes. Yeah, exactly.
2: But the one thing to me that's never really changed, and please disagree with me if you think I'm wrong, is Fenway itself.
6: Yeah, Fenway... Fenway is very interesting. I mean, there are
2: two baseball parks in America that they should never, ever tear down. First of all, they never should have te- torn down Ebbets Field. They never should have torn down the Polo Grounds. That's New York. That's I'm angry about that, right? <laughs> People ask me if I'm a Dodgers fan. I said I never forgave them from leaving, from leaving New York. But in Boston and Chicago, you have Wrigley Field in Chicago. I mean, that's baseball feel the way it should be a baseball stadium. And the same thing with Fenway.
6: Yeah. So Wrigley and Fenway are the only two ballparks of their time left. Um, And we are the oldest in continuous operation uh, built in 1912. And Wrigley first started operating in 1914. So we beat them by two years. (laughs) Um, But they are timepieces. The investment into the ballpark to keep it Anything that's over 100 years old needs a lot of love and a lot of upkeep and a lot of preservation. Um, And to be in Fenway Park has this beautiful intertwine between traditional and modern. You have grandstand seats from 1934, the Green Monster, uh, so on and so forth, as well as the modern amenities that you see in other ballparks. Well, the
2: one thing I will tell you that you already know, but I'm going to tell all my listeners, is at least the food got better. Baseball food, when I was growing up, sucked. It was, there's a name, you may, you're you too young to remember the name, but for those people who grew up in New York, there was, a, there was a food distributor in New York who did all the stadium food named Harry Stevens, Harry M. Stevens. The worst hot dogs, the worst mustard, the worst buns, it was the worst everything, but that's what you ate, right? Now... You you go to Citi Field in New York and they got five guys out in right field and you got I mean you got some great food.
6: HM Stevens actually was our ballpark food distributor as, as well. I said.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and now Airmark. Okay. And and better facilities and better brands.
6: Well, better so much as updated, yeah. right? I think um you know putting the love into the bathrooms and you know the concourses and seats.
2: Is and- it is it possible to put love in a stadium bathroom?
6: It is possible to update it so that it functions the way we would expect it to. Okay, function that's a in perfectly
2: political answer. I appreciate that, but you, I got to go back and ask you a question because I just referred to something called the Green Monster. Many people may not know what that is.
6: So the Green Monster is the left field wall in Fenway Park.
2: But it's not just a wall; it's a huge wall.
6: Well, it is thirty-seven feet two inches tall. Um, and it has been there since basically the beginning of Fenway.
2: But there's not a stadium in America that has a 37-foot left field wall.
6: No, we are very much grandfathered in in that, in that sense.
2: So let me ask you a question. If I'm up to bat and I hit the wall, right, my, I hit a deep, field, dip, deep fly in a left field, it hits the wall, it's not a home run, is it? or is no, it? No,
6: it's not a home run unless it hits the top.
2: And goes over.
6: It's the top. So there is a line at the very top of the wall where if it hits above that, that's a home run.
2: Wow. But if it hits the wall, it's, it's in play.
6: Oh, yes. And not only that, it's going to leave what we uh, refer to as a Fenway Park tattoo. Uh, so if you ever get a chance to get up and close to the green monster, there are basically pot marks. Along the wall where you can see balls that have struck it. Um, And they will leave not only an imprint of the stitching, but the words that are on the ball. Um, And you see them, thousands of them along.
2: And then when that ball comes back into play, it's a little green has to be.
6: Yeah, and also we have a distinct advantage that our left fielders certainly know how to field those things, right? They have the advantage of knowing how things bounce, knowing if it hits at this particular spot, it's going to bounce back. Um, and that advantage actually goes all the way back to the beginning of Fenway Park and something called Duffy's Cliff. You ever heard of Duffy's Cliff? No, no. So when Fenway Park was built, we are only one square city block Um, And so we capitalized on all of the space that we could have within that one square city block. And at the time, the field was lower than Lansdowne Street, which is where the green monster abuts. So there was a small incline going from left field up to the green monster wall. Uh, And it was lovingly referred to as Duffy's Cliff, because Duffy Lewis was the left fielder at the time and knew if the ball hit here, there, he could field it from, from that angle. Um, they eventually flattened that out so that it is a flat ball field. Um, but that left field has definitely had its quirks uh, since the very beginning.
2: Now, there's one seat out there in the, in, in the bleachers, right, that's painted a different color.
6: Ah, the red seat. So explain we, the red seat. The longest in uh, the longest inside the park home run in Red Sox history uh, is the Ted Williams red seat. Uh, the there is folklore that goes along with this that Ted was up to bat, saw someone sleeping in the bleachers, and hit the ball directly to that person. Whether or not that's true, who knows? Makes for a good story. Um, but hit the person, broke his hat and became the longest inside the inside the park home run.
2: But if you hit the person already, wouldn't that have already been a home run?
6: Inside the ballpark is what I should say.
2: As, um, okay, inside the park. Inside Got the
6: it. inside if it's inside the park refers to when it's in the on the, the structure. Field. Yeah, right. inside I what I meant to say was inside the ballpark.
2: I understand. And that's painted a different color because
6: it just designates where that ball went to.
2: And how many people want to sit in that seat?
6: It is definitely an attraction. Um, back in 2013, I was lucky enough to sit out there as part of the World Series, and the red seat was to my right, and there was a five-year-old boy who got to sit there for one of the games, and he was so excited that he was sitting in the red seat. He th- he didn't quite understand why it was important, but he decided that the red seat was very special. <laughs> and I think a lot of people feel the same way, especially when you see it on TV or inside when you're inside the park. It's a little further away than you would assume. Once you climb the steps and get all the way up to row 42 – it kind of hits you that yeah this is this is pretty this is pretty far away from home plate,
2: and nobody's gotten close since.
6: Nope no one has gotten no one has gotten close since. Although Ted had it had an advantage that today's players do not. Um, back when Ted hit that home run, the press box was lower, um, and we had just had a big nor'easter, so he had the wind to his back and nothing blocking the wind. Uh, so whether or not that made a difference uh, is up to you.
2: My thanks to Sarah to Peggy Fogelman, to Keith Lockhart, and to Bob Allison, and my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you might happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, there's an easy solution. Just log on to petergreenberg.com.
0: The Ion Travel podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio.
3: Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary, it is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or
7: Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It On The Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It On The Fame early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus.
0: The Hargan women seem to have it all.
7: From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing.
0: But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household.
7: Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Mm -hmm. No one's answering.
0: I'm Peter Van Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.